Thank you so much for tuning in. This is Camille's Demi Hour on Nantucket's NPR station 89.5. And this week on the show, I feel like I have my first celebrity on, on the show. We have Isan Gordal from Formaggio Kitchen in Cambridge, Boston. He does have an Nantucket connection, which many of you actually may remember, but he was part of the Formaggio shop, which then became Fahey and Formaggio, and on Nantucket here. And we are honored to have him here. He's probably the most knowledgeable cheese person, I think, in the Northeast. Uh, welcome, Isan. Well, it's great to be on the air with you, Camille. Well, thank you. I had met you at the Nantucket Wine Festival during one of the cheese and wine pairings, and I uh, was just amazed at your knowledge. And I, I just said, I have to learn from this man. He seems so knowledgeable. I have to get him into the studio, and I have to become friends with, <laughs> become friends with him. So let's talk about how you started Formaggio Kitchen, which is really a staple in Boston. It's been there for over 30 years. Is that correct? Correct. Um, we're actually, uh, we were opened in 1978. And um, in 1982, I moved into East Coast and um, we're, I was coaching at Harvard University, men's and women's volleyball. And I took a, a part-time job at Formaggio Kitchen and that evolved into part ownership, equal ownership. And uh, we ended up taking over the place. So you went from coach to uh, cheesemonger? Exactly. <laughs> a normal, tra- a normal it, transition? It, it, it's what you expect. <laughs> but you're not originally from um, the U.S., correct? No. Um, I grew up in Istanbul and had an athletic scholarship in West Coast. And I went to UC Berkeley for a volleyball scholarship and moved to East Coast. And uh, life kind of takes its turn. I can't imagine what you have seen happen within the food and wine culture um, over that span of time. And you were in Cambridge during the Julia days. Were you exactly, not- <laughs> exactly. I, um, when I finally got the courage to build the first cheese cave in our basement, I actually, she was getting quite frail uh, at that moment. I actually had to carry her down the basement steps and put a chair in the cave. And, uh, and she took a taste of a cheese, we plugged the cheese for her, and she said, oh my, this is as delicious as a sirloin steak. <laughs> and, and we were all cracking up, and um, oh. and she put us on the map. I mean, I have to I have to thank her endlessly. Um, she, she was the most amazing person I've ever met in my life. Wow, and I know you have many stories and have met many people in your life, but she was a, a force. Um, Very special. I'll tell you a funny story. You know, you could always tell when she came to the store, you'd see this red Volvo station wagon come in, and you'll see her park, and you'll see both cars on on front and back move back and forth. She did the bumper park of (laughs) classics. And then she'd come into the cheese side, and in front of her there was a lady questioning us, kind of a harsh way of if this had nitrates, if this had nitrites, and she taps her on the shoulder, and she was definitely taller than this other customer. The woman slowly turns around and looks at her, and Julia goes, Nitrites will not kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and she bought the woman immediately turned around, bought a half a pound of ham, and walked away. <laughs> I mean, she, she was very straightforward. Um, it, it, she was an amazing person. Very, very, very missed. 
I'm sure she did put you on the map, but your taste and your your knowledge of cheese has absolutely helped. The store is remarkably beautiful. It is there's so much eye candy in there. And I actually walked away from the store when I went and I thought that it's almost like a restaurant because people spend so much time in there, but without sitting down and having a, having a meal. But you, you're, you're looking at all the beautiful products. You're looking at all the different cheeses. You're trying to learn while you're in there. It's like a library of food and wine and, and accoutrements. So was it always cheese and vegetables and wine? Did it start with just cheese? Well, it it started as kind of like a gourmet shop, and it evolved into many national and international relationships. We really um, changed the way the business was done. We were definitely not the pioneers, but I think we did it on a more personal level. Everybody we buy from, we're, we're very friendly with. You know, their children come and stay with us. We go stay with them. There are there are very tight knit relationships in in what we do. We're we're kind of uh, what you see is what you get, and we look for real food, uh, and we spend a lot of time, energy, and money finding it. And even the people that we find do appreciate. They they're amazed that we're out there talking to them, and we're actually dreaming of bringing their product from that mountainside all the way to Cambridge and New York and, and Boston. So it's we surprise a lot of people, but then when they get to know us, uh, we become lifelong friends, basically. And that's part of a great business is building relationships that you can exactly. and then work together and, and share what you're creating. So now I need to ask, what brought you to Nantucket? How did that connection happen? Well, you know the um, the Hobart family, all those giant mixers you saw in our our ancient mixers, I should say. It's uh, a relic. The thing is beautiful, relic, but they're beautiful. <laughs> Come on, I can't give them up. Um, the Hobart family called us and said, "We have this project. Please come to the island. We'll we'll put you up uh, in our guest house. No strings attached. We just want you to see it." And the location that they had purchased uh, right near the old part of um, downtown Nantucket was just just breathtaking, everything in it. And they paired us with one of their favorite wine person, Michael Fahey. And um, we looked at each other, my wife and I, and said, boy, this is, this is quite interesting. I mean, how do we say no to this? We really, it, it was just too good to be true. And um, we couldn't say no, so we jumped into it. It was about 1998. I think we did it for the summer of 1998. And then it lasted for a little while because it was pretty intense, I imagine, going back yeah. and forth and having the properties in Boston. Exactly. Um, because we opened in 99 our South End store. You know, we, we needed a break in life. It's, you know, all work and no play didn't really work for us, especially after you have your fourth quarter, the holiday rush, and you survive a winter like we just did this year. You want to have a good time in summertime, and you know having Nantucket was Christmas all over again for sixty to ninety days. Right, it was just endless. And if you're just tuning in, this is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour on eighty nine point five Nantucket's NPR station, and we are speaking with Isan Gordal, the owner of Formaggio Kitchen in Boston, Cambridge, and in New York, who used to also work here on Nantucket at Formaggio. I guess I want to also talk about your your knowledge about the pasteurization and that debate about cheese. Where are you and what do you have to deal with when it comes to those regulations? 
Um, it's, it's really interesting that you bring this up. We, we are avid followers and seekers of raw milk production cheeses. And in the meantime, you know, raw milk is so, so important, and, and naturally people that do it are smaller production people. They're very proud. I mean, we were just at a farm, a dear friend of ours, and an old employee, Michael, at Twig Farm um, near Millsbury in, in in Vermont. You know, he knows, he has about 60 to 90 goats. He knows the, everyone's names, and he knows how much milk they make, what what their personalities are like, and and he takes such good care of the animals. He's so meticulous about how he makes cheese. It's so clean that you're really getting the benefit of all these expertise and the pastures. When you pasteurize, you really lose all of that. You end up with a product that tastes the same no matter where and when it's made. It's consistent. You have to give it to them. But it doesn't have those interesting qualities, the complexities of the seasons, the pastures, the personality of the cheesemaker, the personality of the animals. Um, all the little quirks disappear, so you end up with a kind of, to me, a mundane product. And at the same time, it surprises me that, especially with cow's milk cheeses, I have dealt with farms from France that used to make strictly raw milk cheese and went into making pasteurized milk cheese, mm -hmm. and the cheese was actually better. Hmm. So, you know, one should never generalize. It's, it's to us, is always constant tasting, constant listening, constant learning. The learning never ends. You know, the day you say, oh, I know it, you, you're a dead man. <laughs> I love cheese. And I think a lot of people do love cheese just because there's such an array of cheese. But the pasteurization versus non-pasteurized cheese, I think some people think more about, more it's about health and risks versus the expression of the terroir like a wine. And then really getting those um, minute elements of flavor within a non-pasteurized cheese. But do you think these regulations will change now that there's kind of so much more exposure? And I don't think so. I think that the regulations are important um, because we all have different immune systems. For example, myself being grown in Istanbul, you know, my immune system is probably very different than someone that lives in Des Moines. Um, it's what you're exposed to, what you grew up with. Mm -hmm. All these things are important. You know, if you grew up in some little village in Normandy eating raw milk camembert from age two on, you know, your immune system is different. Right. Um, exposing that to someone that has never had it, it, it's risky. So the rules and regulations are correct. There are any, any rules and regulations. They're a little extreme. So we try to find a, a meeting point and, and bring things that fit the rule and regulations and, and, again, bring that excitement of that beautiful cheese. Unfortunately, we're handcuffed in certain levels, which is sad, but yet at the same time, we tell our customers to seek these things when they travel. Right. And, and do it in moderation. Right. Uh, do it slowly. It's just like, you know, you don't go drink the water in Mexico City. Right. If you, you haven't been exposed to. Right. So you're educating them and just having their eyes be open to try other things and to keep tasting. Exactly. And so uh, I think one other thing I, I loved hearing you talk about is how you source the cheese, the, the affineurs, which I would love for you to share about how you go and get these amazing cheeses from all over the world. Well... As you can imagine, it's a very tight-knit community. 
We have great friends in the same business in London, Paris, Milan, you know, any any Barcelona. Um, everybody really appreciates and understands what it takes. So there's a very tight bond between people at a certain level. It's a very small circle. Um, so our our kind of approach to it, we I think we're kind of unusual on how much amount of effort and money we spend in defining the products that that appeal to us. So our our usual trick is it's not even a trick, it's way of approaching things. We will go to a town or a region or a terroir and we'll call all our friends in the business say, what do you know about this place? Where should we eat? Right. And um, they usually go, oh, you must go to this restaurant. And when we go to these places, we sit down, have a great meal, and then we strike some kind of a conversation with the owners or the staff and go, my God, this was amazing. Where did you get the oil? Mm-hmm. Um, where did you get this cheese? Um, and they go, oh, my God, that's my cousin. <laughs> oh, my God, this is, you know, someone, a little farm four miles down the road. Do you want to go see it? And that's the kind of reaction we want to see when that happens. I, I can't, you know, I can't even imagine, you know, even now talking to you what that leads into. It, it's such a flip of a coin. We could go there, it could be a dead end, or it leads into three other sources. Mm-hmm. Um, that just happened to us in Switzerland. We went out and tasted wines with uh, with a cheesemaker, and that evolved into talking about their history. And all of a sudden, we were going to a goat cheese farm that none of us had planned to, and that's going to become a cheese that we're going to bring to United States. So it's it, it's it's quite... It's it's more human to human start, mm-hmm. and that evolves into what do you do? What do mm-hmm. you know? What's around us? And how did you find this? And what are you guys all about? And what are we all about? And somewhere along the lines, there are alliances that happen, um, and and that's what we hope for. Mm-hmm. And these people that you do meet, is it, are they historically doing it generation to generation, or a lot of them new farmers? What's what's the ratio? It really depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, when you are in the you know old school countries like Spain and France and, and England, you really get down to the source. Um, we struggled in in Athens getting to the farmer. They uh, we were just in Athens. They they seem to have a lot of middlemen or businessmen trying to market a product instead of we we're so used to dealing with the farmer, mm-hmm. which is what we prefer. You know, getting to know the real people, understand why they make what they make. Mm-hmm. That kind of was was kind of surprise to us. But kind of like the wine world, they do have negotiants of sorts, too. They do have exactly. to have some middlemen, which are the people who age the cheese. Exactly. The, that's why I think um, in France, it's it's quite interesting, the affineurs or cheese maturers, um, and this is really good for the farmers if you think about it. In the old days, the farmers made the cheese, took care of the animals, took care of the pastures, and then aged the cheese and sold the cheese in farmers' markets or to distributors. So now, kind of not new but existing entity, is taking an ownership earlier from the farmer when the cheese is immediately made. Mm-hmm. Um, the affineur, the mature, takes the cheese, and that cheese kind of becomes his or hers. 
it's no longer the farmer's cheese. And the benefit of that to the farmer is that he is getting his money quicker. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to worry about making making ends meet. He doesn't have to worry about maturing, packaging, selling. So it, it, it's 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 a quite an important entity in our business. Yeah, the farmer is very. It's a challenging position professionally on an economic scale. Financially, absolutely. I mm-hmm. mean, imagine a farmer that makes a cheese. Um, it's expensive, taking care of animals and everything else. Yes. Um, and he has to age it three to six months, and he's not seeing any return on it. Mm-hmm. And especially in the U- U.S., not many banks are going to go around and say, oh, we'll give you a loan for that. Um, right. So he's on his own, and he has to count on immediately getting his money the minute the cheese is ready, and he struggles to get to that point. But all of a sudden, the savior comes into play. Somebody is willing to buy it from day one. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to do the work and add the value to it and then sell it. So um, it's quite an interesting mechanism that took place in France. And and it's good. I mean, you, you, you get to meet the farmer. Then you get to meet the affineur, the mature. You see the relationship, which is very tight. Um, and you see the care the maturer puts into the cheese. So you know you're in good hands. If everything is done with respect to the producer. His his value of what he's created is well taken care of, and that's kind of, in a way, why we built caves in Cambridge. We really understood that, you know, all these points that the cheese goes through, mm-hmm. it's a shame when it comes just before to the end user, it's bastardized. So we said, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy makes amazing cheese. Right. This person takes good care of it, yep. gets it to us. And now we have to do the right thing and put it under the right conditions and get it to and the end user, which are the people. Exactly. It's such a fragile good. It, it really is. and you, <laughs> Compared it, it to anything else that's so packaged and contained. I mean, it, it's so exposed. You know, it's, it's alive and it suffers under the wrong conditions. It's mm-hmm. simple as that. And then the people that buy a, a, a suffered product get the wrong idea about it, they'll never buy it again. It, it defeats the whole purpose of this whole chain of movement. Right. If you are just tuning in, we are speaking about cheese with Isan Gerdal from Formaggio Kitchen, and this is 89.5 Nantucket's NPR station, and Camille's Demi Hour. And Isan, what about the dynamics of the cheese farming industry in the U.S.? How, has, how have you seen it change for the better? Oh my, oh my God, some amazing people, and more and more very talented people are getting into it. And I will say this with, uh, with any doubt, we're extremely lucky to be where we are in the Northeast. Um, it feels like every week I, may, I meet an amazing person. Uh, tomorrow I'm going to Sweet and Salty Farm in Little Compton, Rhode Island, and picking up the yogurt they make that reminds me of my childhood oh, and wow. yogurts that I used to have. And I know they're kind of experimenting with cheese making. And I already know what cheeses he's making. So it, it's endless. We're very lucky. You know, the Matteo and, and Andy at um, Jasper Hill in Greensboro. We're extremely lucky. I mean, everybody around us uh, are making wonderful cheeses. And I'm lucky to have very passionate young staff, the new generation, that's probing in and making friends with these producers Mm -hmm. and bringing cheeses to us in great, great condition.
Yeah, we we are lucky to be in this renaissance of food right now, but you have really been witnessing it for many years, and I'm sure you've been procuring and trying to work with the the local people and with great products abroad uh, for many years. And I, I'm glad to see that your audience and your, your customers appreciate it to the fullest, especially now. I know. I'll, I'll tell you a, a, a really interesting story. This is early 80s. Um, Ann Dixon from Vermont that used to make the most amazing brie, and she'd drive it to our store on the back of our station wagon with you know two or three kids screaming and fighting in the back seat. And it was the most amazing thing I've ever seen, especially coming from Europe. But she didn't make it. You know, she would come in and she was so upset. She'd say, such and such shop took my brie and said it was no good. And and that was the biggest lesson for me. Um, That taught me, A, to appreciate what's around you, B, to support it, even if it wasn't great to start with, but it had great promise. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to tell the, the new staff, saying that, look, don't turn your nose up to a product. You have to understand how much work goes into it. Mm-hmm. And trust me, when you meet these people, if you see who they are, I, I can bet you this product is going to get better. Mm-hmm. This is the most crucial part of their endeavor. We need to support them now. Yeah. And in order to change the structure that would affect policy and other things that would help um, support this industry a lot more, which we all know needs help. Everybody has to take the baby steps. Mm -hmm. Um, And without people like us, which is the retailers, supporting these people in the early stages, it's a doomsday for Mm -hmm. them. And, you know, anybody can try to buy a product that's amazing and it becomes more and more precious because everybody wants to have it but it is much more important to go through the whole journey to get that point. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to get that across people. And, you know, I almost cried when this young man showed up to the store, and that was Ann's son, Peter Dixon, and he was making cheeses now. Now he's a gun for hire. He runs around and makes cheeses for small farms, teaches them how to make it, and, you know, he's carrying the mom's work. Well, I know if you're going to be into cheese and making cheese, it's it's a big commitment. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Those animals don't stop giving milk. <laughs> well, Isan, it's so lovely to be speaking with you. And we really just, just scratched Same. the surface with your business. And we didn't even get to really talk about all the amazing honeys and vinegars and oils that you carry to, to accompany these great cheeses. So I officially invite you to the show again. <laughs> Thank you. You know, as you've seen... We put the same energy that we put in the cheese with all the oils and vinegars and mm-hmm. honeys and, and pastas. Our ideology doesn't doesn't blink. Uh, we try to do the same thing with everything else we do. Once you walk into the store, you, you know that for sure. And please, if there's anything you want to say to your fellow old friends here on Nantucket. <laughs> I miss Nantucket. It was so nice to be there for the Nantucket Wine Festival and, and see everybody and go have dinner with our, at our old restaurants that we loved. Um, it, it's such a beautiful place. Well, we welcome you back. Bring us some cheese. We don't have any strong cheese makers yet on this island. And if you are one and listening, please call right away. I'd love to talk to you about cheese making. Thanks again for joining us today. And Isan, have a beautiful weekend. And we hope to have you again soon on the show. 
And Camille, thanks for having me on the air. Thank you again. Thank you. And that was Isan Gardal from Formaggio Kitchen talking cheese with us. Thank you so much for listening. This is Nantucket's NPR station 89.5. And this is Camille Broderick with Camille's Demi Hour. No time for dreaming.